Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stuff Your Ears. We are a podcast of Bismarck Community Church, and here we will give you conversations, discussions, as well as sermons and thoughts and ruminations that all are aimed at helping us to live, or at the very least, to understand what it means to live as a faithful Christian in a world that's often not quite what we wish it were. Glad you tuned in. I hope you enjoy. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Today, however, we're going back a little bit. We, we started working our way through Jeremiah a while back, and I want to finish it. And so for a couple of weeks here before Lent starts, we're going to be in Jeremiah. And today we are looking at chapter 34 and 35 of Jeremiah. Two chapters, I'm not going to read it all, um, but I, I, I needed to cover it all because it's all one piece. It's all one thing. you you got to understand a little bit of the background and what exactly is going on in, in Jeremiah. Baruch, who wrote down most of the words in the book of Jeremiah, and kind of edited it, right? Baruch's job, what he did was he, he sent, you know, sealed it up, sent it off in a letter to Babylon with the exiles. And we've talked a little, last couple of weeks, we talked about Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, when we've talked about these people who are post-exile, this next generation, the, the grandchildren, probably, of the people who first were taken off to Babylon. Those people are coming back, eventually, and Jeremiah knows it, and Baruch knows it, and when they write this stuff, and when Baruch seals it up and packages it and gets it all put together, he sends it knowing that this is for those great-grandchildren who are coming back so that they can learn what it means to be faithful to God and what it means that God is faithful, and so that they can know how they are supposed to live as the people of God in the, in the world that they find themselves in. That's the whole point. And, Gen, and Jeremiah 34 and 35 is one whole section, it's a block of text, that is here to teach those people that will be coming back to Jerusalem, what does it mean to listen to God? What does it actually mean to listen to God? So what we have is two episodes. 34 is one episode, 35 is another episode, and they're 10 years apart. And see, I think they needed to hear this, or at least Baruch, Jeremiah, these guys knew they would need to hear it, because they might be tempted as they're coming back. I mean, think about it. We've talked about Ezra's, Nehemiah's people. And then, Woe is us. Like, that might be what their tempta- tempta- temptation will be, right? Um, why did this happen to us? The world has been so cruel to us. We didn't deserve any of this. Does that sound at all familiar? We might use the phrase victim mentality. Oh, it's all, you know, the reason things aren't going well for me is because my teacher hates me at school. Or, you know, um, my boss hates me at work. Or, you know, it's all, it's, it's all the other people's fault. And they, they, they could have easily come limping back from Babylon to Jerusalem, found the walls torn down and the temple burned to the ground and thought, oh, it's all everyone else's fault. It'd be tempting. The point of this is in part to make sure they understand that that's not 
an excuse, nor is it a way to live. So let me just read a little bit, kind of navigate our way through this so that we can get a sense for what this is actually saying and then try to draw maybe a point or two (laughs) out of it. Um, Okay, I'm going to read some portions so that we know what's happening. I'm going to read starting at 34. I'm going to go down. I'm going to read verse 8 and following just so we can understand. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After King Zedekiah made a covenant with the people. Now this, what we're going to read happened in about 588, 588 B.C., okay? Zedekiah's king. Made a covenant with people, make a proclamation of liberty, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. Now this, by the way, just to understand, this is based on rules that God had given the people in like Leviticus and Exodus way back, hundreds of years prior to this. God said, if you have to, if somebody owes you a debt, it's okay, there's some kind of provision, you know, you can enslave someone for seven years, but after seven years, you got to set them free, right? This is what he said. And, and so Zedekiah is king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's banging on the walls, trying to tear down everything, and Zedekiah's like, go set the slaves free, and the people do. It says, verse 10, they obeyed. All the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant, that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free, verse 11. But, <laughs> but afterward they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. What a bunch of jerks. Like, literally the next day, you're like, okay. I mean, talk about porcelain prayers. There's one right there, isn't it? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And he's reminding him of what I just told you years ago, years prior. I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's interesting, isn't it, that these people were former slaves. I brought them out of the house of slavery, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you for six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me nor incline their ears to me. And by the way, never once, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, these people have these rules. Never once did they faithfully follow this. Never once have the people faithfully, as a whole, freed their slaves on the seventh year like this. Never once. And and God says it. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name. Let me just point something out here. This did you, you profaned my name. Some of us, God here connects this to, you know, one of the Ten Commandments says you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And sometimes we get the idea that means like you can't stub your toe and say, oh God, right? Which I'm not advocating because it kind of hurts my ears a little bit when people say that. But God's not connecting, that's not the way God is using that here. He says, you made a covenant with me in my name to set these people free. And then you, you backed out of that and you undid it. That is what God considers to be profaning my name. When you say, I will do this because I want to be faithful to God. And then you don't do it. That's what God sees as taking my name in vain. 
okay? Just pointing that out. Um, you profane my name when you took back your female and male slaves whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, to famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms on earth. All right, real quick, kind of talk through it as we went. But what is this about? I'm going to have to use a phrase that I know may not be something we all like. But it's a phrase that I think we understand. But the point of this particular episode is social justice. I know we might not all like it. But that's what is in view. That is what God is saying. And he's saying, I mean, I have called you to be just in society to the exploited, to the poor, to the vulnerable, to the outcast. This is what you're called to do. You're called to love well, to actually, and we see this all over, um, to use your power, to use your authority for the good of those without power, without authority. That is the call. And God says, you haven't done it. This is rooted, by the way, in all kinds of biblical teaching. Jesus even picks up on it and says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. That's the point, and it's never, (laughs) never been fully obeyed by God's people. Here and there, spots, yes, but as a whole, in the nation of Israel, they never did. It's it's never really fully been done, this, this laying down of power for the sake of the weak. The second episode, just so we see, because this is the comparison and this is important, the second episode actually happens about 10 years later. Is that right? Is that right? Sometimes when I'm doing P- BC, prior, thank you, prior, 10 years prior, when I'm doing BC, I get, because the numbers are higher and lower, 598 about. So this happened about 10 years prior, but the editor compiles it this way to teach this lesson. Let's look. I'll just read a few little bits so we can kind of see what's going on. The word that came Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, different king, 10 years earlier, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, go to the house of the Rechabites. Now, we don't know a whole lot about them. We know they were probably a religious sect that sort of lived in a rural area. Kind of in, they were country folk. That's what they were. And they may very well at this point have been... Um, evacuated into the city to be behind the city walls. So they were likely in Jerusalem at the time that this happens. But that's, that's what we know about them. You'll see a little more. Go to the house of the Rechabites. Speak with them. Bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, different Jeremiah, common names like David, son of Habazinah and his brothers and all his sons. I brought the whole house of the Rechabites, all these people. I brought them to the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, who is near the chamber of the officials and above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. All this is to say, it's like the grand ballroom. That's the point. You know, it's this fancy, this nice room at the temple where people go for events. And then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, this is a guy that lived about 400 years before them, he, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. Okay, 
We'll talk about that in just a minute. I want to pick up verse 12 just a little bit so you can see where this whole section goes. Verse 12, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rahab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day. Wait for that, because it's upsetting to God. For they have obeyed their father's command. This, this human man, man, this person, 400 years ago told them, don't drink wine, they still haven't. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. And I have sent you servants, prophets, telling you, turn from your evil way, amend your deeds, do not go after other gods. And the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have kept the command their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. So the point here that God is making, and you can see it, right? These people, the Rechabites, they are following human rules and traditions religiously, <laughs> devotedly. They are, just to be clear, the Bible here does not say don't drink wine. The Bible here says, Jonadab told the people not to drink wine. They still haven't drank it. 400 years, not a drop. But you can't listen to me. That's the point that's being made there. That's what God is, is trying to say. That this human tradition is commanded and faithfully obeyed. Some of us probably know what that's like. I know some of us here, because I've had conversations, grew up where you did not enjoy yourself on Sundays. <laughs> that was not okay. If you have fun on a Sunday, you're going straight to hell, right? <laughs> That's probably what some of you learned. Definitely don't go mow the grass. You can't do that, right? Um, and these rules become so important to us, but loving our neighbor... <laughs> becomes more difficult. This, this argument that God makes is an argument from the lesser, the more insignificant thing, to the greater. You can do this, but you can't do that. This little thing is so tiny. This thing is so big and so important. Why is it you can do that, but not this? And I have given this a lot of thought. And maybe, let me before I say that, let me say this, because just in case... We're still so far removed, right, because of the Rechabites. Who are these people anyway? How about this? You and I, right here, um, BCC, right, we struggle. We struggle with community. We struggle with community groups. We struggle with connection. I know because I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a Super Bowl party, by the way. I meant to tell you that. There's a Super Bowl party. If you want to hang out after church, I won't be there. So I've had a long week, and I'm tired, and I'm going to go home and get in bed. <laughs> but there is a Super Bowl. But we struggle, right? Because I, I am. I am prioritizing my need on a Sunday afternoon to be, you know, to rest. I am. I'll own that. But that's what we do, don't we? We prioritize our needs to not, and then we sacrifice community connection. We, we have a hard time getting gospel communities together, right? Because we're all busy. I mean, we got, we got the sports balls teams to go to and all the other things that happen. And so many, so many functions. And, and, and life does get busy, and we deprioritize 
community. We deprioritize love your neighbor well. I get it. And, I, I, and I'm not trying to, I'm certainly not pointing any fingers. If I do, there's four pointing back at me. I know this. But that's, that's where we are. It's BCC. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there are Amish people, and I've seen it. I was in northern Indiana somewhere once. And, and, and these people, they got, they got barns in the Walmart parking lot because before Thomas Edison made a light bulb, these people were told not to go with any advanced technology, and they are still driving their horse and buggy and parking it in the Walmart parking lot. And they can do that. I mean, they can pump their water out of the ground, I imagine, like this still, right? And you and I can't take an hour and a half a week to gather as community. That's the, that's the message that God is saying to these people. And so I've thought about why is that, why is it? Because I think we can all recognize that it's, it's a whole lot easier, isn't it, to follow rules laid down for us than it is to listen and obey God, to love well. That's a lot harder. And, and I think it's because our righteousness, our, the way my neighbors look at me, the way you look at me, the way you know, other people might look at us, is more important to us than God's glory. Our righteousness is what really matters the most to us. I, uh, I was talking to Jim this week, we were in a conversation, he said this quote, this line, which I don't think was original to you, and I'm not trying to take credit from you, but I'm betting you read it somewhere. He said, we want the kingdom without the king. And that's been in my head a little lately. We, we want the kingdom without the king. We want all the externals of the kingdom. You know, we live in a world right now where I find this really fascinating. Compassion, kindness, tolerance. These are elevated values. These are the most important things that you can be, that you can hold to, is, is kindness and compassion toward everybody. These are the values that we love. And many of the people who I know who hold these values do not want the king. They, they, don't, they don't believe, right, that there is a creator and a savior of humanity we're, we're, we're just sort of accidentally floating around on a blue marble, you know, and it'll spin so many times and then we won't be here anymore and the sun will explode and that's the end of it. But here's the thing, kindness, compassion, tolerance, these values that we uphold, that we love so much, that we find to be so important, they only exist as the leftovers of Christendom. I mean, let's be honest. If there is no king and there is no savior, then the best thing I can do is steal everything I can from you and get rich myself, and one day I'll die and it won't matter, and you'll die and it won't matter. Doggy dog, man. Like there's, there's, There are two value systems to me that make sense. One has a king and one doesn't. But we want the king... We want the kingdom. We want, to, we want all the kingdom, the tolerance, the compassion, the kindness, the respect, but we don't want the king. 
The same is true externally. We want all the outward, I am okay, I am good, my life is great, everything is wonderful around here, but what God commands might be too hard, and it might, it might open up, it might expose where things really aren't okay, and that's dangerous. But that's what the king does. You know, I know personally of a, a church, I'm not saying names or anything, but, but this and it's certainly, I, I just know of this one. Um, I am sure it's probably been here. I'm not, again, pointing fingers. I'm just not aware of this particular thing. I know of a church where I know personally of two cases of where someone in power, someone in authority, exploited, abused, took advantage of someone weaker, and that that was hushed up twice. But you can't smoke cigarettes and be on the worship team. That's the truth. That's true. But that's what's here, and I'm not pointing fingers out there, because that comes from the human heart. That comes from our need to look okay and our need, our desire to have the kingdom but not have the king. And I think we're all that way. We were made for connection. We were made to connect to God, to, to serve. Like, you know, we said earlier, we were made, we, our soul thirsts for him. We have a purpose for which we were created. And that purpose is not to, to have our kingdom come. That purpose is not to satisfy all of our needs as much as we can. It's pure design function. Our purpose is to point to God's glory, to God's honor, to God's dignity. And here's what I know and what I've learned from experience. We all of us tend to want to get our kingdom to come. We want to expose our own glory. We want to live for our own sake. And when we do, things do not go well for us. They just don't go well for us. If you've ever smoked meth, you know that. It's true. You get, feels great, but then things fall apart. It just doesn't work. If you've ever stolen, <laughs> you probably know that. Feels really good at first, but then it feels really bad. We all, we, we need to live according to our function. And our function demands that we point to the glory of another, not ourselves. We get the kingdom with the king. But I promise you this, you'll never have the kingdom if you continue to reject the king. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are good. You are king. You are holy. You are righteous. You are um, gracious to us. Help us to live in the reality that we are desperately needy for you. 
and remind us that we belong to you, that our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but we belong to you, you who are faithful and kind and gracious to us. Help us to live that out, whatever that might look like. Would you help us to live out the reality that we are alive by your grace? It's in your name we pray. Amen.